I've always loved that last um, song we sang together, especially the line, it was my sin that held him there. I find that line very hard to sing, but very good to sing, too. And that's what this morning's message is going to eventually be about. But let me start here. A few weeks ago, um, my wife and I uh, hosted our in our home. We have five couples, uh, including ourselves, that meet uh, once a month. And as we often will do, part of that time after sharing dinner together was uh, having some fun, playing a little game together. And the game we decided to play this time was um, kind of a newlywed game, only we called it a not-so-newlywed game because all the couples have been married 25 years or more. But it's where you, you know, have a series of questions. Well, first you take the men out of the room, then you have a series of questions. The wives have to ask, answer the questions, then you bring the men back in. And if you answer the question the, right, the same way, you get points. And it's a little competition. So there were, we all went out of the room, and their questions were like, um, what was the anniversary of your first date? <laughs> December 14th, 1982. I knew that one. We got points for that one. Then there was a question, uh, what color were the bridesmaids' dresses at your wedding? Now, if you're a married guy and you're here with your wife, just lean over to her and tell her what color the bridesmaids' dresses were at your wedding. I'll wait until it gets really uncomfortable. But I knew that one too. My wife was astonished. Mauve. Remember mauve? Mauve was a color back in the 80s. It's not a color anymore. And then there was a question, if you were uh, stranded on a deserted island... What one food would you want to eat for the rest of your life? So I really thought about this one because I wanted to get them all right. And I said, spaghetti. Because, for those of you who want to know, because back in my single days, I once ate spaghetti every night for dinner for over a year. What? I like spaghetti. What can I say? Easy to make. Just put the pot back in the fridge and get it out the next day. I was a single guy, but my wife, when she answered, she said, I would say peanut butter, because I eat peanut butter every day. I'm a big fan, and I've often said it's nature's most perfect food. Can I get an amen for that, anybody? <laughs> and I was thinking, of course, peanut butter. Of course. How can I forget peanut butter? I was thinking meal. She was thinking food. We got that one wrong, but we did get enough right to tie for first place, so that was Okay. We're continuing our series, almost done now, the series from the Gospel of Mark called Following the King. And today we're talking about a meal, a meal that we all understand uh, that Jesus shared with his closest followers, and it's a meal that we still remember today and will celebrate at the end of the service. Let me just set the scene. Uh, We're in the last days of Jesus' life and ministry. In fact, we're probably in the very last day of Jesus' earthly life. Uh, Jesus has spoken often of his uh, impending arrest and death, although the disciples have not fully understood what he was talking about. He intentionally entered Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal entry, riding on a donkey to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah, who said, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. He's intentionally cleansed the temple. He turned over the tables of the money changers and threw them out, angering a lot of powerful people. He's embarrassed his enemies in several public debates when they tried to trap him. Tensions are rising all throughout Jerusalem. And on top of all that, it's the time for the great Passover feast, the Passover celebration, one of the holiest times in the Jewish year. And thousands of pilgrims have come into Jerusalem to observe the great tradition. So to set the stage, I want to look at a few verses uh, 
in Mark 14, beginning in verse 12, before we get to the actual text we want to study today, because I think this is important. Mark writes in verse 12, And on the first day of unleavened bread, now the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Passover were, were intimately connected in the Jewish uh, celebrations, uh, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare uh, for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, this would have been a little bit weird, because in those days the women carried the water, not the men. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, so we know the story that we're going to look at today. We're familiar with it. We sort of skip over this first part, this sort of preparatory part. But I think this is really interesting for us to pay attention to. Like, imagine it's uh, Thanksgiving time, and uh, your family's going to gather. And so you ask one of the family members, uh, hey, where, where are we going to celebrate Thanksgiving this year as a family? And they say to you, well, here's what I want you to do. Go drive into Chicago, uh, and then you're going to drive until you see a guy delivering water to a big office building. And then go ask that guy. He'll take you into the big office building, and they're going to show you there a big room that's all prepared for us. That's where we're going to have it. Like, what? How does that work? Well, that's what we see here in the story. Now, there's two ways to look at this. Either Jesus is sort of displaying this supernatural foreknowledge of events that are going to happen, or maybe he's arranged all of this ahead of time because he wanted to keep secret the moment and place of the Passover meal with his disciples because he knew that betrayal was coming and he didn't want anything to happen before it was the right time. I'm listening, I listened this past week to a South African preacher named Chris Winand who said this. It's a great line. He said, Jesus always takes us to where he has already been. Jesus takes us to where he's already been. I love that line. So all that in preparation. Jesus is controlling the narrative. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what his disciples are going to face. He takes them to where he's already been. Now let's read our text for today, Mark 14, beginning in verse 17. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table, that's how the ancient Jews ate. They, and Middle Easterners still uh, have really low-slung tables. They sort of lean on cushions. I've done it before. It's really uncomfortable, but that's the way they did it. Reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So, I want to begin with the first part of the story that I'm calling the King's Betrayer. The King's Betrayer. Now, some of you know, if you've heard me over the years, that back in the day, I played a little college basketball. Look at that guy. Still had all his original joints. I miss that guy. But one of the things we hated most as players, and some of you, if you played high school or college sports, you might remember this, but was running conditioning sprints, wind sprints at the end of practice, you know, to get in shape. We all dreaded that, and we did a lot of it. And the worst of the sprints uh, was a sprint drill called a suicide. Now, it's not politically correct. I'm sure they call it something different now, but that's what we called them then, suicides. Any of you remember those? 
where you start at the end line, you have to run to the free throw line back, half court line back, three quarter line back, all the way to the end and back. It's a total of five court lengths, but it's the turning, it's the changing directions that really gets you, that wears you out. And so uh, the coach would line us up at the end, blow the whistle, and we'd have to run to the free throw line. You have, you have to touch the line with your foot or sometimes your hand, go back, touch the line each time, half court back. And, but even, inevitably, it was easy to sort of take a little shortcut, like to stop just a little few inches short of the line and a little shorter next time if nobody was noticing. And you could shave a few feet off the whole sprint, and it just felt better. Every step mattered, right, because you were like... But then the coaches would notice that we were doing that, that you're stopping short, and they would put a guy right there to watch. You had to make sure you touched the line. And if anybody missed the line, back on the line, you had to all start over again. And that was the worst discipline of all because nobody wanted to be that guy, right, who made everyone run again. But inevitably, we'd be running that, those wind sprints, running those suicides, and the whistle goes off, back on the line, and none of us would make eye contact. Because we didn't know who the guy was. Maybe it was us. Maybe it was me. Because we all knew we had missed lines. And you dreaded if the coach would call out your name because you knew that you were the guy who let the whole team down, right? Well, two things happen here in this story, both surprising. First, Jesus says, one of you who are eating with me will betray me. It's surprising, shocking, really, because these men have been together now for over three years. Jesus had chosen each one of them by name, called them to follow him. In those days, to follow a rabbi was a great honor. They had all left their lives behind to follow him. They had walked together. Uh, they traveled mile after mile. By some estimates, uh, they walked 3,000 miles together in those three years. They'd eaten together, gone hungry together, slept on the ground together. They'd watched Jesus heal the sick, touch the lepers, calm the storm, feed hungry crowds. They'd heard him teach and watched as he debated with those trying to trap him by his words. They'd seen the crowds just days before waving palm branches and, and screaming out, Hosanna, the king has come, the Messiah is here, yet still he says, one of you will betray. The word means to give up or to hand over. And they would have understood him to be saying, one of you is going to hand me over, give me up to the enemies that are seeking to destroy me. <clears throat> now, we know he was talking about the disciple named Judas. Earlier in Mark 14, we read, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Matthew tells us that the price Judas negotiated was 30 pieces of silver. Ironically, in those days, that was about the price it took to replace a slave who had died an accidental death. 30 pieces of silver. So why did Judas do it? What was his motivation? The Apostle John says it was simple greed. In John's version of the story we looked at last week, the woman who poured the expensive perfume over Jesus... John writes this, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And then later he says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So John says it was just, he was greedy. He wanted money. Others have wondered it was some sort of a twisted ambition. 
Perhaps Judas became frustrated with what he perceived to be the, the slowness of the plan, that he wanted Jesus to be more bold about announcing himself as a new king, a political king like King David. And he thought if he could just get him in front of the Sanhedrin, whatever it took, then Jesus would be forced to show his power and become king and give them all spots in the kingdom. Some have guessed that. Either way, Jesus says it would have been better for this man if he had never been born. Now here we see something interesting. It's the collision of God's sovereign will with human responsibility. Because even though Jesus' death and resurrection was God's sovereign design for salvation history, Judas was fully responsible for his decision and for his actions, the mystery of God's sovereignty and human free will. But there's a second, under, second surprising thing that happens here. Mark tells us that when Jesus says this, one of you will betray, they become sorrowful. The word means to grieve, to be greatly distressed. And then each of them, one by one, asks this haunting question. Is it I? Is it I? And some translations render the phrase, surely not me. Or am I the one? Now we know Jesus was talking about Judas, but we don't know for sure if they knew. Talks about dipping in the dish, but we don't know. They, we don't think they knew for sure at that moment who the one was. And it occurs to me that the only reason any of them would ask, am I the one or is it I, is if in some way or another it was possible or they had thought about it. We don't know for sure, but is it possible that others of them, of the 12, were offered money to hand Jesus over? These were not rich men. Is it possible that uh, some of them were promised jobs if they would just, you know, give away his itinerary? You don't have to do anything. Just tell us where he's going to be, and we'll give you a, 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 big, a big position. Maybe some other family members were threatened. We don't really know. All we know is each one said, is it me? Am I going to be the one? And the answer, as we're going to find out, is yes, it is. It is going to be you. Judas betrayed, but others betrayed by cowardice and fear, which we're going to look at in just a minute. So that's the first part of the story, uh, the, the king's betrayer. But the second part, I'm calling the king's table. We come to the king's table. Uh, my first year out of college, I lived in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, uh, playing and coaching basketball for a club team there. Uh, and at one point, a friend that I had met in our local church there in Geneva, and I decided to go on a backpacking trip uh, to Greece. We wanted to see Athens, and so we packed up a bunch of stuff and traveled by train, ferry boat, taxi cab, walking, and made it all the way uh, to the outskirts of Athens, just on our own, camping out and stuff. We had almost no money. Uh, but we were so hungry after this all-night train ride, we, we needed something to eat. We didn't want to go to a restaurant and spend money. So we stopped at a street vendor and bought a big round loaf of crusty bread. It looked a lot like that. I mean, like this big. And a chunk of uh, cheese. And we sat on the side of the road, broke that bread with our bare hands, and ate the entire thing, all the cheese, all the bread, and agreed that it was the greatest meal we'd ever had in our lives because we were so hungry. And every time I have a piece of crusty bread to this day, I remember that piece of bread in Greece with my friend. Mark says in verse 22, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, we all recognize the story. We see this as the Last Supper, uh, the beginning of what we know today as communion. We're going to remember that at the end of this service. But on this particular night, at that meal, it was a new thing that was happening. And not just new, a surprising thing and probably a very confusing thing. Because the Passover meal stood at the very center of Jewish identity. It was the great story of God's deliverance of his people from bondage in Egypt, the great story of the Exodus. And the whole Passover meal was meant to help remember that story. And if you've been to one of our Holy Week communion services in the past, you know we go over this in some detail. We'll do that again, I'm sure, in a couple of weeks. The, the table had bitter herbs and salt water to remind of the tears and the bitterness of their time of slavery in Egypt. Uh, they had the unleavened bread, bread made in haste as they prepared to make their escape. There were traditionally four cups of wine scattered throughout the meal to remember the promises of God to his people. There was the cup of sanctification. He said, I will take you out of Egypt. There was the cup of deliverance. I will deliver you. There was the cup of redemption. I will redeem you. And then there was the cup, fourthly, of praise or consummation. I will take you to be my people, God said. And then, there, of course, there was the roast lamb, the lamb that was slaughtered and its blood put over the door frames of the homes as the angel of death would pass over the Israelite homes, bringing judgment on the homes of the Egyptians. Now, these men knew the story. They had observed this meal every night of their, every year of their lives. They knew it by heart. But here, this night, Jesus changes the script. He changed the meaning of both bread and cup. Mark says he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, said, Take, this is my body. Not bread in haste, not bread made in haste, not given time to rise. He says, this is my body. Now, our Protestant tradition says, uh, believes these are symbolic words. They're not to be taken literally. Uh, there are religious traditions that see these words as literal, that the bread and cup actually become the body and blood of Jesus and that doctrine is called transubstantiation. Some of you may have grown up with that. We believe these words are symbolic, not literal. Verse 23, and he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. My blood of the covenant. Now, what did that mean at the time? Up until this moment, these disciples, who were all Jewish men, would have understood the blood of the covenant to refer to two things. First, the sacrificial system that they had all grown up with, that is the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sacrifice the blood of an animal once a year to atone for the sins of the people. That was the blood of the covenant. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness, they believed. And they would have thought of the blood of the slaughtered lamb put over the door frames of the ancient Israelite homes in Egypt. The prophet Isaiah said, Even I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. The blood of the covenant. Jesus now says, This is my blood of the covenant. Not the blood of an animal. My blood. Not the blood of a lamb spread over the doorposts. My blood. Hebrews chapter 9 says it this way, And he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. 
or new promise. Now, I don't think the disciples could have understood fully in that moment what Jesus was doing, but he was replacing the Passover lamb with himself, replacing the blood of an animal with his own blood, replacing the body of an animal with his own body. And whenever in the future they would share this meal, they would not remember the exodus. They would not remember the escape from Egypt. They would remember his death and his his resurrection. And that's what we will remember at the end of today's service. And then in verse 25, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now, what does this mean? Well, many scholars think that this comes between the traditional third cup of wine in the Passover meal, the cup of redemption, and the fourth cup, which is called the cup of consummation. I will take you to be my people. That Jesus takes a break between the third cup and the fourth cup and teaches them about his body and blood which means that he's saying he's not going to drink the fourth cup, the cup of consummation, until his eternal kingdom becomes a reality, which means that is still to come. Now, two things I want to notice here. First, what we typically call the Last Supper is actually the First Supper. And secondly, and more importantly, I want you to notice that Jesus, Jesus offers his body and his blood, that promise, after predicting that there's going to be a betrayal. I think that's significant. We'll come back to that in just a moment. And all that leads us to the third part of the story, which I'm calling all the king's men. All the king's men. Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Mark says they sang a hymn and went out. The hymn was likely from what are called the Hallel Psalms, uh, a group of psalms between Psalm 116 and 118. And if that's the case, let me read a couple of verses. They may have been singing as they walked the short walk from the upper room to the Mount of Olives. For Psalm 116, the snares of death encompassed me, the pangs of Sheol laid hold on me, I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord, O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. From Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. If that's what they were singing as they walked together, they were singing about what they did not yet know was going to happen that very night and the next day. They went to the Mount of Olives, we're told, to a place called Gethsemane. Uh, This is what Gethsemane looks like today if you're able to travel there. Uh, It was kind of an olive grove at the foot of the Mount of Olives, just a short walk from the upper room, one of Jesus' favorite places to go and pray, and you can see why. And here Jesus offers a warning. You will all fall away, he says. Now, he's already said there was a betrayer in their midst, and they all had wondered, is it me? Could I be the one? Is it I? And now he just says bluntly, you will all fall away. I want us to stop here just for a moment. Because what I want us to see is the connection between the bread and the cup and this statement, you will all fall away. Here's the two things I noticed. First, knowing that his disciples 
knowing that his closest followers, knowing that these men he had poured three years of his life into would all fall away, did not keep Jesus from giving his body and blood for them. That's why, in fact, Jesus gave his body and blood for them. The second thing I notice is that knowing Jesus, loving Jesus, and following Jesus did not keep them from falling away. I'll say that again. Knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and following Jesus did not keep them from falling away. And that's why they needed him to give his body and blood. I think this connection is right at the heart of the gospel because we all fall away. Jesus' body and blood are for us. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. And then we notice Peter, good old Peter, blurts out in verse 29, even though they all fall away. I mean, they're right there, these other 10 guys. Even though they all fall away, oozers, <laughs> I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, I can almost imagine Jesus' tone of voice when he says, Peter, 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 surely I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, even you will deny me three times. And then he doubles down, even if I have to die for you, with you, I will never deny. And then it says they all said the same. Did you notice that? They all said the same. I think this is classic Peter, you know, loud, proud, impulsive Peter. But I think he was sincere. I think he was absolutely sincere. I think he was willing, he thought he was willing to die for the Lord that he loved. I think they were all sincere. They just didn't know what was coming. And I think if we try, we can see ourselves in these disciples, can't we? And we're like them. We, we love Jesus. We want to follow him. But when life gets hard or when pain comes or when temptation comes, uh, we, we can fall away. We do fall away. And then notice Jesus gives one more promise tucked in here. Verse 28, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, in the moment, I don't think they could even hear what he was saying. He just said they're going to fall away. Peter's been yelling. They're all yelling. They're all saying, no, no, no. And then, but he, he gives this promise. I don't, think he, I don't think they heard it that night. But in a couple of days, they would remember. Oh, didn't he say? He said he would meet us in Galilee. And we're going to get there on Easter Sunday morning in a few weeks. Here's how I want to wrap up today. I saw something this time going through this familiar story that I hadn't really seen clearly before. I mean, I knew that Jesus used the Last Supper, uh, which is really the First Supper, to infuse Passover with new meaning. I knew that he was saying that the lamb that was slaughtered would be him, that it was his blood by which we would be forgiven and redeemed. I knew all that. But I had not really considered the juxtaposition and the way Mark tells the story and the way it took place of the giving of the bread and cup sandwiched right between the prediction of a betrayal and the prediction you will all fall away and the prediction of Jesus, uh, Peter denying him three times. It's right in the middle of all that. And I think that's intentional. 
And I think that's for us today. Years ago, maybe 25 years or so ago, um, when we just had one campus, and it was First Baptist Church of Geneva at South Street, uh, it was Communion Sunday. And I was uh, fairly new at the role of senior pastor at that time. And I remember we had uh, all, the, uh, all the servers came up and lined up right in the front row, and I was going to pass out the, the big brass trays to them of bread and cup. And this one particular Sunday morning, it just so happened there were eight or ten of the servers, and I knew all of them, and I knew something about all of them, each one of them, through just pastoral conversations, times of prayer. And what I knew about them were things that weren't very pretty, some pain and some brokenness, a divorce, an affair, addiction, anger, depression, brokenness in family relationships. I, and I happen to know this through personal conversations, and all of them are, have since either passed in eternity or moved away. But as I was handing out the trays, it dawned on me with each one as I looked at them, I know and you know why we need this. This is why this is so important. This is why these little pieces of bread and what, we're, what you're going to have in your hand, these little cups that we use now, the symbol is so important because we all fall. We all fall. You and you walked in here today, hopefully you were given this little card. It just has the question on it, it is I, from Mark 14, 19. Jeff had these made because we wanted to, to burn that question in your mind. And I want you to have you consider it in two ways as we prepare for communion. This little question. And when you leave here, you just take it home with you, put it in your Bible, put it on your refrigerator. There are two ways to ask this question and to answer it. One is, is it I? Am I the one? Am I the one to betray? Am I the one that betrays? And the answer to that is, is yes, in some way we all fall away. In some way, we all struggle. In some way, all we all need the bread and the cup. The other way to answer it, though, is to consider what Jesus said in the garden when he said, you're all going to fall away. He was talking to 11 men, Peter, James, John, all the others, and they all did fall that night. They all were terrified, but every single one of them, within days, was restored, forgiven, they became the apostles of the church. They all went on to die martyrs' deaths for the sake of the gospel, except for John the apostle. And we are here today because of the testimony of these men who all fell away and then were restored by the one who gave himself for them. So the second way to answer the question is, am I the one to receive the gift of his grace, the gift of his bread and cup? Because of all the disciples, they all did that except for one. Scripture tells us that Judas, the betrayer, chose to end his life before he knew what Jesus would do for him. And he would have done it for him too. So, am I the one? Is it me? Is it I who have fallen? And is it I who have received? So, bow your heads. We're going to head into a time of communion. Lord, we thank you today for your word and especially for what we remember today. And we acknowledge that like your disciples long ago, we love you. We want to follow you. But 
we all fall in some way or have fallen in some way. And so today, mostly we want to receive the great gift of bread and cup, your body and your blood shed for us. That forgives, makes clean again, and restores. So we ask you to meet us by your spirit again through bread and cup. And it's your, in your name that we pray. Amen. You want to do a song now, Margaret? Take out your little cups. We're just talking about when to do the song. We'll do it after we share communion. So peel off the top carefully. You, you all know how to do this now. That's the bread is in there. During the meal, as we just studied, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And he said, this is my body. Take and eat in remembrance of him. Let's do this today in remembrance of him. we're told that after the bread, Jesus also poured a cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sin. The Apostle Paul reminds us that as followers of Jesus, each time we drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Do this in remembrance of him. Just before the benediction, I want to just encourage you to take your cards home with you. Uh, use them as sort of a prayer prompt, maybe between now and the remembrance of Holy Week and Resurrection morning. Is it I? Our benediction today comes from Hebrews chapter 13. Listen to these words. And now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a great day.